This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Fractures have had a major impact on our healthcare system, with an economic burden estimated to be over $20 billion per year. And due to the increasing age of our population, they'll have an even greater impact in the future. In addition to the economic burden, hip fractures often result in major changes to one's lifestyle. As a result, the detection, prevention, and management of osteoporosis becomes an important health strategy. Today's topic is osteoporosis, and to discuss this topic, we're joined by Dr. Kurt Kennel, a Mayo Clinic endocrinologist and specialist in bone metabolism. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us today. Very glad to be here. Let's go with some real basic things first. Talk about our diet as we age. How does that affect whether we're going to have some problems with bone density in the future? We certainly can say that one's lifestyle does affect the potential to develop osteoporosis, whether that be how well we develop our skeleton during our childhood and adolescence, which for most adults is beyond our control, to the point as you're getting at that If we follow a healthy lifestyle, especially in our mid and and later years, we can attenuate slow how much bone loss we might experience through natural aging, although may not be able to stop it altogether. So it it does seem prudent to do what we can with regard to lifestyle, including diet, to minimize the bone loss that otherwise could happen naturally. As you might have guessed, in that space, we think a lot about calcium nutrition. We think a lot about vitamin D nutrition. These are fundamental elements of a healthy diet when it comes to preventing bone loss. And for some people, that's an easy task because they have a preference for foods high in calcium, which could be you know, dairy products, could be nuts, could be dark greens. And for those who happen to live in sunnier climates, maybe vitamin D nutrition is not a concern because of judicious sun exposure. Whereas for some of those like me who live in a northern climate, I might need to supplement vitamin D throughout the year or the wintertime at least. So Certainly nutrition plays a role, and I would suggest attenuating or slowing the loss of bone that might occur with aging, but may not be sufficient altogether to stop that loss. Okay. Who's more likely to get osteoporosis? What are the risk factors? I kind of alluded to this and that there is a genetic component. There is a component of of genetics that might be out of our control. So we do know that certain groups of individuals, for example, people of Northern European background, for example, have higher rates of osteoporosis. People from East Asia have higher rates of osteoporosis, whereas people from Central Asia, Africa, and some other backgrounds may have a lower risk of osteoporosis, independent of age, independent of other health status. Beyond that, within any individual, those who have lower body weight, whether that be a a natural phenomena for them, an appropriate thing for them, or just a challenge they have related to other health concerns, a lower body weight perhaps less than 120 pounds or so, is associated with a lower bone density and a higher rate of osteoporosis. And then there are certain health concerns that people might encounter throughout life, like an early menopause, for example, or thyroid problems, overactive thyroid in particular. Certain medications they might have to be exposed to as relates to their health, like steroid medications, that can definitely predispose to osteoporosis. Let's talk a little bit about screening patients. When should we start? Is it based purely on age or are there other factors involved? Great question because it's broadly applicable to people over 65 years of age, but there could be people who might want to be checked sooner than that. 65 in women was chosen as a good time to screen, even otherwise healthy women, 
because that seemed to be a good time to pick up on those who might be a bit ahead of the curve when it comes to developing osteoporosis later in life and having fractures. But if we had that early menopause, let's say 40 instead of 50, or if we had some nutrition concerns or health concerns in our 30s and 40s and 50s, and especially if we've had fracture events, simple fractures, a fall from a standing height and a large bone broken before age 65, we should consider having a bone density test earlier than age 65. I've often wondered why 65 was picked. It seems like at that age, you're going to pick up a fair number with osteoporosis, but I'd rather know earlier in life who we could maybe prevent from getting there. Yeah, so this is a recommendation that comes from the United States Preventative Services Task Force and other professional groups who try to really think of the question on a population health level, like what's best for our community. And, and that's what they came up with was age 65 and women and kind of debatable whether men should be screened or not. Some would say after 70, yes or no. But to your point, if I'm concerned and if I might take action, you know, myself take action with regard to my lifestyle or medical decisions that I might make, might even choose, for example, to use estrogen as a menopausal woman versus not, having that bone density test might help inform my decisions at an at a age younger than 65. So I do think there is a space for people to look at that as an individual question and say, could this information be helpful, perhaps in conversation with their, their primary care provider? Mm -hmm. Well, as you know, patients now get their results often before we get them sometimes. And they're often puzzled by the results of their bone mineral density, you know, the T-score, Z-score. And I have trouble explaining it to them. How would you explain the difference between a T and a Z-score and what the significance of those two things are? I'm still trying to understand that myself. I think that we have to keep in mind that this test, this bone density test originated back in the 90s. And at that point, it really all really was just the T-score. And that was really all that mattered. Whereas now we know other things tell us about the quality of strength of the bone beyond the T-score. So simply put, the T-score is comparing my bone density to that of a young adult Caucasian woman. Actually, in men, we still compare it to young adult women. It just works better for reasons I can't, I won't explain. So it is just a number that is comparing it to this benchmark, this young adult woman peak bone mass, age 25 or so benchmark. And how far below that one is seems to predict my chance of having broken bones later in the future. And the minus 2.5 that was chosen for the T-score to be considered osteoporosis, diagnosed people with osteoporosis at about the same rate, the same frequency, as we might diagnose them later in life by how many hip fractures we tend to see in women as they get older. So that's where that number came from. The Z-score makes more sense because it's comparing my bone density with my peers, other men my age, in this case, Caucasian men. And so that seems more logical. I just want to know how I compare to others. Am I normal, right? Am I what I should be? But it turns out that doing that doesn't diagnose osteoporosis very frequently or at the rate that we would expect fractures to occur down the road. So this T-score thing is kind of an odd thing, but that's where it comes from. It, it served the purpose of identifying people who were likely to go on to have fractures if it was minus 2.5 or lower. Now, these days, we do take into consideration other things such as age, such as weight, smoking status, alcohol use, other things of this nature, including have I broken bones recent or not? Because if we add those things to the T-score in a calculator we use called FRAX, it further identifies who might be at higher or lower risk than the T-score otherwise would have suggested. So the T-score still is important, but it's not the only thing that informs us, are we at a higher risk or are we at a lower risk? Okay. 
You know, I've done a lot of bone mineral densities on patients, and and usually I would say the T score at the hips is kind of similar to those of the spine, but occasionally you'll get a patient who has a significant bone loss mm-hmm. in one of those two types of bones. So what accounts for that big difference in several in some yeah. patients? So we call that discordance or T-score discordance, where one site is quite different than the other. Sometimes, you know, you and I might interview the patient and discover something about their health in the past might explain that. So for example, something about their growth and development, a patient who had polio as a young person might have a low bone density on the right side of their body versus not on their left side, for example. But when we don't have explanations like that, we sometimes do wonder, is there something preferentially causing bone loss, for example, in the spine, more so than the hip. And there are some diseases that do that. Cortisol excess or Cushing's disease might do that, for example. Uh, Myeloma might do that, for example. So sometimes when I see that discordance, I want to look a little more carefully to think, is there something causing bone loss preferentially in that region? And if we don't find that, we don't always think that matters. We tend to take the lowest score at any site and say, that's still a good indicator of the overall skeleton's health, the overall risk of breaking a bone, since all bone breaks could matter. And so we would generally just focus on the lowest score. So there are some times where that discordance matters, but most of the time we chalk that up to just some variability in how our body is developed and we don't worry about it and we just choose the lowest score. All right. Well, we have a lot of patients who end up having osteopenia, like osteoporosis. Mm -hmm. So what should we be giving as advice to those patients with osteopenia. And it's interesting because that term has been challenging to work with because it it does kind of sound bad to have osteopenia. No one wants to have osteopenia, right? It, It sounds like a disease. When it was always meant to be kind of a term just to tell people that the bone density might not be as good as it used to be, but not osteoporosis. And so there is a movement to adopt the term low bone mass in place of osteopenia to kind of soften the quality of that word, you know, to say, yes, the bone density is of concern. We're watching this, but we don't necessarily want to call it a disease. So that's one thing I would point out. Here's a situation where we would say maybe those other variables in the risk assessment, if I have osteopenia or low bone mass, but I also happen to be a smoker or also happen to be older, maybe after age 80, my risk might be as high as someone who already has osteoporosis in terms of a T-score less than minus 2.5. And we do know, based upon some trials recently, that certain treatments like bisphosphonates do lower the risk of having fractures, even in people who have just osteopenia. So as you said, Dr. Chuck, it's kind of just a word that we use to try to label people somewhere between normal and osteoporosis, and yet we don't want to overweight or underweight what it might mean in terms of risk of breaking a bone and how that would inform treatment decisions. As you mentioned earlier, calcium and vitamin D are one of the main forms of treatment that we will use early on in osteopenia. But I found, especially in the postmenopausal woman, uh, as our calcium needs go up, uh, it's really hard to get enough dietary calcium Plus, we're also telling to avoid calcium-containing foods because of their cholesterol. Calcium supplements are often recommended, but there's a variety of types of those as well. What should we be recommending for calcium and how much? I like your approach. I do think we want to think first about the diet. And for those who have opportunities to get adequate calcium through their diet, that's probably the way to go. You mentioned cholesterol as maybe a negative thing or fat, saturated fat as a negative thing we might prefer not to have with some dietary sources of calcium. But other dietary sources of calcium might bring some good things with them, like protein, for example, nuts as an example. So if I have a person who has the liberty of 
getting all their calcium through their diet, I, I would still favor that. But as you said, if the diet doesn't offer that opportunity, we shouldn't be shy about using calcium supplements. There was a time when there was some negative messaging regarding calcium supplements and heart health. I think we've largely shown that's not to be of major concern. So now we might be choosing a calcium supplement primarily based upon what is tolerated best. There are different forms, chewable, non-chewable, calcium carbonate, calcium citrate, calcium phosphate. The differences between these for the average person is quite small. So if I find for my own sake, a calcium citrate tablet is less constipating, for example, than a calcium carbonate tablet, by all means, calcium citrate's the way to go. But if I find a chewable calcium carbonate is more appealing to me because I have difficulty with big pills, I wouldn't make a big concern regarding how much of a difference there is between the calcium carbonate and calcium citrate in terms of how well they're absorbed. So I think unless the provider and a patient really had very specific reasons to recommend one over the other because of some gastrointestinal disorder or surgical history, I think the person would be best served by finding what fits their needs in terms of tolerance and adherence and not worrying too much about the difference between the supplements. Okay. I have been told that calcium carbonate is absorbed better in an acid media. And mm -hmm. we have a lot of our patients who are now taking proton pump inhibitors, H2 antagonists. So is, is there an issue with the calcium carbonate? And... Yep. I agree with you, Dr. Chuck. I, I think that we can say there are differences. They're just small differences. If we have the opportunity to make an easy switch, like you said, my, my patient is using an acid suppressing medicine, I would guide them toward a calcium citrate product. Mm -hmm. But if for some reason that was just going to be overwhelmingly burdensome, the difference between carbonate and citrate in that patient using an acid-pressing medicine, I don't think I would necessarily make that a focus point. Now, there are data that show that if I take my calcium carbonate with a protein-containing meal or a high-protein-containing meal, the amino acid or the protein component will favor the absorption of the calcium from the calcium carbonate source. So there are some tricks that we can use in that regard. And I agree with you, we should look for the best match for the patient. But again, I, I don't think we should overweight how much the difference it makes, especially if the person's having challenges with tolerating one product versus the other, when at the end of the day, that's probably what matters most. All right. Let's talk about vitamin D. Do we need supplements? <laughs> that question of the year, yeah. question of the question of the decade. It depends who you are. I think we would agree. So there's been some recent buzz about vitamin D. I think most of us have had mixed feelings about the, the VITAL trial. This is a large multi-center, very well done trial of 25,000 men and women or so over the course of five years, taking 2,000 units of vitamin D versus placebo. And the results were kind of disappointing in terms of not showing a lot of benefit when it came to fractures or bone density. But with the qualification that these were mostly healthy people, these are people largely quite healthy and so I now think we can say people who are quite healthy, who have good diets, who have other reasonable sources of vitamin D, they probably don't benefit from taking extra vitamin D. But my patient who does have osteoporosis, my patient who is maybe you know quite a bit older and having some nutritional challenges, my patient who doesn't get a lot of sun exposure, who can't tolerate dairy products, as you mentioned, for example, who might have some underlying medical problems that don't favor vitamin D health, 1,000 units of vitamin D3 per day is a good bet for them to cover that base and not be getting too much, very low risk to doing so. I, so again, I think the messaging really should continue to be that, yes, we need to temper our enthusiasm, that more and more vitamin D doesn't necessarily help a lot for people who are otherwise quite healthy, but we shouldn't forget about the fact that vitamin D deficiency is still pretty common in people who aren't healthy. 
and taking a vitamin D supplement up to a thousand units a day could be a good safe bet for them. I have read somewhere that vitamin D is our most commonly taken nutritional supplement nowadays. And I have to admit, I have found more people with excessive amounts of vitamin yes. D than a deficiency. And as I explore this, I've found that there are a variety of doses out there available. 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, and there's even a 10,000 unit dose out there uh, over the counter, and there's no instructions in the bottle. So I've had patients 10,000 units a day thinking that's the daily dose, and their levels are sky high. Without labeling or judging anybody in that regard, I think what has happened, there was just a lot of enthusiasm, you know, excitement, you know, appropriately so. Uh, maybe a little bit of marketing there too. You know, why not 2,000? Why not 5,000? I Everything else being equal, I might, as a consumer, tend to purchase the higher dose for the same price. I just, that might be my inclination. But the endocrinologist has always been mindful that this hormone, because vitamin D really behaves like a hormone, at low amounts is not good for us, but at high amounts is not good for us either. There's a middle spot there. Mm -hmm. There are some nice studies recently that show that 10,000 units of vitamin D per day cause bone loss cause bone loss. Vitamin D in higher doses actually increases bone breakdown. So there is a limit to the benefit of higher dose. Put that limit somewhere around two to 4,000 units per day. Mm -hmm. But I would recommend for the average person, if we're in the 1,000 unit, maybe 2,000 unit per day, we're going to be not teasing the question of safety and maybe getting some benefits, especially if we have some health issues that make our vitamin D nutrition more challenging. And then exercise. It's a mm. basic component of Indeed. treatment. What kind of exercise should we be instructing our patients to participate in? I think that's a lovely opportunity for us all, isn't it? Because that covers so many things beyond osteoporosis. I mean, exercise is so powerful beyond osteoporosis. So even though my bone health might be my motivator, I might be taking advantage of the fact that this is also good for my cardiovascular health, also good for my mental health. But from a bone point of view, we want to keep in mind that it's, it's not just a direct effect on the bone tissue that we want this exercise for. We also want functional fitness because if I have low bone density, if I'm also becoming frail in my muscle strength, my muscle function, causing me to be more likely to be stooping, more likely to be falling, that's adding to my risk of breaking a bone independent of my bone density concern. So our exercise goal is not just to make our bones stronger. Our exercise goal is to make our muscles stronger and our function of our muscles better. Therefore, we need multiple different modes. We need balance promoting exercise. We need posture promoting exercise. We need strengthening, especially of our lower extremity exercise, in addition to our weight bearing impact, which is what you typically hear about with osteoporosis. We need all of that because we're not just interested in exercise on bone tissue, bone density alone. We're interested in exercise affecting our function as well. So I tell people it's not just taking a walk, it's not just that weight bearing that you hear about for bone density purposes. What are we doing to promote our balance and our lower extremity strength, like lunges, for example? What are we doing to promote our posture, like some core strengthening exercises? We really need all these different types from an osteoporosis treatment plan if the goal is preventing fractures later in life. An exercise that will help prevent falls. Well, osteoporosis used to be really easy for us to treat. You know, we had calcium, we had vitamin D, we had exercise, and we had a bisphosphonate. Now you have job security because <laughs> there's a lot more out there. Can you review some of the pharmacologic treatments for osteoporosis? 
Well, I'm glad to hear I have job security. I, I appreciate I, that. You do. You do. It's no longer easy. <laughs> I would say part of the difficulty with more choices is more dilemma and more conflict with making that choice, isn't it? You know, do we go with the good, the better, or the best plan, right? The gold, the silver, or the platinum plan. You know how this is. The more choices, the more dilemma. Let's break it down. The first decision is, do I use treatment or not? What is my risk of breaking a bone? How much does any treatment lower that risk? And do I feel confident that's in my best interest? That's where the starting point is. And we have guidelines for where those risk thresholds might be in my favor to start treatment. So we have that. If I'm a lower risk individual, meaning I have a T-score less than minus 2.5, but I haven't been breaking bones, I'm not necessarily on steroids, we would still say the old medicines, the bisphosphonates, the Fosamex, they're still our tried and true. They may be good enough, both in terms of preventing any further bone loss, making the bones somewhat stronger, to lower the risk of a fracture enough that this is getting the job done and getting into the newer, more potent medications is probably not necessary. The old drugs have the benefit of we know how to use them. They've been out for 25 to 30 years. And although there are common conversations we have about those old drugs like Fosamax and their safety, I would suggest we know a lot about their safety and we know how to navigate five, 10 or more years, including using drug holidays to minimize the risk for things like atypical femur fractures. So I don't think we should be too quick to miss out on the opportunity to use the medicines we know a lot about, even if they're not as fancy and new as we previously would have liked to have had. So what's new and what's exciting and what should be on our radar? I would suggest to you that for the patient who has a very, very high risk of breaking more bones, the person who has very low bone density and has already been having fractures. A talking point these days in bone medicine is should we actually start with a bone building medication first, an anabolic therapy we call it, before we start to use the more traditional bone maintaining type medicines like Fosamax. The reasoning is that the bone building therapies are more potent. I don't think anybody would deny they're more effective at strengthening the bone and reducing the risk of fracture. What might be as important though, is that the sequence of these treatments matter. If I use some of the other treatments, let's say Fosamax first, I might not respond as well to a bone building medicine should I choose to take it later, okay? So I need to think about these things, not just as a one-time decision, but as a five and 10 year plan, because the sequence that I use these treatments in matters. The second thing would be, what is the safety of these treatments? We have some newer medicines that we don't have the same track record of safety for. The latest medicine called Evenity, which is a very powerful bone building medicine, really quite exciting, could be argued to be the best available medicine. It's only been out for a couple of years and has some questions about cardiovascular safety. So if I'm a low risk patient, if my risk of fracture is you know, concerning because I have a, a low T-score, but I've not broken bones before, I might, pause on using those more aggressive medicines. Whereas I'm a very high-risk patient who's already had vertebral compression fractures, and I'm really in a, a tough spot when it comes to more fractures, then using the more modern aggressive medicines like Evenity, I actually, as a bone specialist, think we should give that serious conversation. So you're right. In some respects, it has become more challenging, but I still think we can kind of separate the conversation into two big things. Number one is high-risk versus maybe not so high-risk. The more modern medications, yeah, that's the high-risk person. And the second thing is thinking ahead. What does starting with this medicine mean for my choices in the future? What sequences of medicine am I prepared for in the future? Don't just make a decision now, and then let's review this in a year because our options might be limited based upon our choices. So 
The best example of that I will name because it will be familiar to the audience is Prolia. Prolia is a, a, a tremendous medication for osteoporosis. This is an injection every six months under the skin. One of these monoclonal antibody type medicines, very targeted in its effects, very potent, excellent medicine. But once we begin Prolia, it's a big commitment. It's a five to 10 year commitment. And we really can't change from Prolia very easily. And we can't step away from Prolia if we change our mind about treatment without bridging people off with a medication like Fosamax. So although we have an excellent medicine, we have to be very careful that we're having a good conversation about why Prolia and what after Prolia before we start Prolia. That's very different than a blood pressure medicine or a diabetes medicine where we can give it a try. And then if we feel differently about it in six months or a year, for whatever reason, we can just stop it and go a different direction. Mm -hmm. With bone medicines, we don't have that luxury, especially with medicines like Prolia. You mentioned drug holiday, and mm -hmm. I know some of these, I know bisphosphonates have a tremendous amount of duration of action in these drugs. I mean, you don't mm -hmm. have to stop it. In fact, it wears on for years. So tell us about drug holidays and when, yeah. when should they be initiated? Yes. And I think this is part of the good news that now a couple decades into the bisphosphonate era, we have a better understanding of how to navigate these 10 and 20 year treatment plans for a 65 year old woman who might live for 20 years. And a drug holiday is, as you said, both possible because the medication continues to work in the bone for years after we stop it and desirable because it seems that taking even one year, even one year away from a bisphosphonate, a holiday of even one year, basically returns the risk for over-treatment, atypical femur fractures, we call them, takes that risk back down to baseline. So if we can have the benefit of the holiday, meaning we don't have to keep taking the medicine forever, typically five years of the pills, three years of IV zolernonic acid, branded as reclassed, we can take a five to three-year holiday, pills versus the IV, depending on which one we chose, and have the benefits and actually minimize the risk for over-treatment. So holidays have definitely opened the door toward finding that balance and navigating 10 and 20 years of osteoporosis, which didn't really understand that so well back in the 90s and 2000s. Now, to be clear, it's not as clear that drug holidays make a major influence on the other concerns some people have, which is osteonecrosis of the jaw or poor healing of the jaw. Should we have a tooth pulled or an implant placed? It is not as clear that that has anything to do with how long we've taken a bisphosphonate or how long we've been off the bisphosphonate. We tend to favor having those things done like a tooth pulled with the bisphosphonate on holiday. We tend to favor that, but that's more just because it makes us feel more confident, not because the science shows that's actually safer. So again, holidays have, again, I think made us more comfortable, especially in starting treatment in younger people like 65 years of age, because now we feel like we have a good sense of how we're going to manage this in a balanced way over 10 or 20 years, which for most women or men with osteoporosis, that's the duration we oftentimes have to think about. I may have possibly should have asked this question earlier, but it sort of fits here too. The frequency of checking bone mineral density, mm. is there a difference between when we're just monitoring the patient's bone density before they start any treatment? versus being on a treatment? Dr. Chuck, I share your question about that. I think we, we both as internists sometimes wonder, how is this test helping me? What is this test telling me I don't already know? So when you think about the person who's not on treatment, the first bone density test and where that shows my bone density and my overall risk of fracture to be tells me the most about my risk. 
repeating that test every two years doesn't really add a lot of information, quite honestly, when it comes to what is my risk for breaking the bone in the future. It has become a custom for us to check the bone density from time to time in people, you know, at age 65 who don't have osteoporosis to see how I'm doing, to check my bone density, to, you know, gauge my progress. But I would encourage us not to be too focused on that because it turns out that that change over time doesn't really add a lot of information. It doesn't, this is counterintuitive, isn't it? You would think it's all about bone density, but it's not. There's much more going on about why I'm likely to break a bone or not than what my T-score is. So if we choose to repeat the bone density test periodically before treatment, I think it's maybe the best reason to do it is this kind of helps us to organize once again, a discussion of what is my fracture risk in the next 10 years and how do I feel about that risk and the benefits of treatment versus no treatment or a conservative treatment. So without the test, it's hard to have that conversation, but I don't want it, us to think like, monitoring the bone density and looking for every change is really what we need to do to be able to make a good decision. So in a vacuum, I might say a person might have a bone density test every two to five years, especially if their T-score is approaching minus 2.5 versus if their T-score is minus one at age 65, I wouldn't check that again for 10 to 15 years based mm -hmm. upon the time we know it takes to get there. On treatment is a different question. Most experts would advocate for at least one follow-up bone density measurement after a treatment has started, typically at two years, just because that's conducive to insurance coverage, among other reasons, just to verify that we're not missing something, meaning most treatments are designed to stabilize or improve the bone density. And if we start the treatment and two years later, the bone density has substantially declined, it does beg the question, how are we missing something here? Am I having difficulty taking the medicine consistently? Is something else going on that's hurting my bones? So I do think it's reasonable to recheck the bone density once, two years after starting treatment. But here again, we don't really need to make it the focus or repeating it every two years indefinitely to be able to make good treatment decisions. Well, we've been discussing the evaluation and management of osteoporosis with Dr. Kurt Kennel, a Mayo Clinic endocrinologist. Kurt, you've given us a tremendous amount of practical information. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Very much enjoyed talking with you today, Dr. Tucker. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.